scripture, scripture uh, pieces today, starting with Matthew 6, 25 to 26, and then 31 to 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, or the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if, if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? John 5, 17-18. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. During the month of January, we've been walking through a series called Hello, My Name is God. And we've been trying to answer some questions, some pretty big questions. How is God portrayed in the Bible? How do we see God revealing himself? And what portraits did past generations of believers paint of God? How does scripture help us to understand and possibly misunderstand who God is? We've been talking about the fact that all of our speech falls short when it comes to God. That we're pointing to something that lies beyond words. But it's not to say that it doesn't matter how we talk about God, because it actually matters a lot. And after spending three weeks looking at how the Old Testament of the Bible portrays God, we finally arrive at Jesus, who spoke quite differently about God. He spoke with intimacy and with familiarity. He not only referred to God as his Father, but invites us to address God this way too. Now before I go any further, I need to recant something I said last week. Occasionally I get up on this little platform and say something that I come to regret, and last week was one of those days. I was talking about the meaning of my name, and uh, we were talking about the meaning of God's names, and I was kind of making a little fun, saying that, you know, as I went around the discussion table the week before, I, everyone had a unique meaning of their name, or they were named after someone significant, and I said, not me, it's just a name, there's no significance to it. And then after the service, I was walking down the hall, and, and Helen walked up to me, and she said, oh my goodness. She said, 
your mother just told me the story of the meaning of your name. What a beautiful story. I'm like, never heard it. So I found my mother and uh, asked her what the story of the meaning of my name was after all these 42 years. And she told me the story that there was a television show that her and my father used to watch before I was born. It was called The Courtship of Eddie's Father. And there was a father and a son in this television show and they had this great relationship. And the, the name of the child actor was Brandon. And my parents were like, if we ever have a son, this is the kind of relationship we wanna have between my father and me. So there is a good story. I'm not just a hill of weeds after all. Anyways, apologies to my parents. If the Gospels in the New Testament of our Bible were a television show, they would likewise feature a deep and meaningful relationship between a father and a son. It's a significant underlying theme of the Bible when we come to Jesus. Mark's Gospel is the earliest written Gospel, and right at the very beginning, the first scene that he paints for us is of Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, a voice came from heaven, the first words of God in the New Testament, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And this frames the context of this incredible relationship that we see unfolding between Jesus and his heavenly father. Now this language is all well and good for us, but only because we're used to it. We're used to thinking about God in these terms if we've been around church at all. So I want to look at our reading, specifically the second part that came from John's gospel. So the story is that Jesus had came up to this place and there were a number of people who were gathered around these healing waters. They believed these waters had healing properties and so they would try to make their way into the waters uh, to be healed. Well, this one particular man had been lying there for 38 years. He'd been crippled. And so Jesus walks up to him and he essentially, he heals the man. But this should be a great story. This should be something that spreads around and everyone is talking about it in a positive way, but that's not exactly what happened. You see, the problem was that the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. John tells us. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So the guy's been crippled for 38 years. He stands up and for the first time in his life is able to carry his mat. And they're like, ah, it's a Sabbath. Sorry, can't do that. Seriously. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Well, apparently Jesus snuck away into the crowd to avoid drawing attention to himself. But it wasn't long before the Jewish leaders figured out who it was. And Jesus said to them when they asked him why he was doing this, he said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, if we brush over this too quickly, we can miss the radical statement that Jesus was making. You see, from the very opening chapter of Genesis, the Sabbath had been our day of rest. And Jesus says, my father has always been working, and I'm continuing that work today. This simple statement contradicted everything that the Jewish leaders knew about God. As far as they were concerned, the Sabbath was untouchable. You couldn't do anything on it, and that was because God said so. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. John 5, 18 to 19. We pick it up. For this reason... The Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. 
He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, that's a great thing. I, you know, I love it as a father of three kids. I love it when my kids have interests that match my own interests. When they do what I do, I love that. My kids show interest in baking and cooking in the kitchen. I, I love that. It's good. We have that in common. You know, when they show interest in playing the guitar, it's a common interest. Playing baseball. Like, these are things that I share with my kids. If, if one of my kids showed interest in soccer, I wouldn't know what to do. Send him Jindy's way. All right. But I survived that one. I survived that one. But this is something different here. This isn't just like, like a, a father saying, oh, I'm so glad that I have this common interest with my kid here. Jesus says something more about this. He talks about the father and the son being in total sync. Now, here are just a couple of passages from later in John's gospel. John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the father are one. You don't get any more in sync than that. So if the, if the Jewish leaders are upset that Jesus is calling God his father, how are they going to respond when he says, I and the Father are one? John 14, verse 10 and 11. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The significant point that we've reached here at this point in our understanding of, of the Bible's unfolding of who God is is that Jesus shows us the truth about who God is, both in what he says and in how he lives, in the things that he teaches and in the way that he lives out his life. He is demonstrating who God is because in his own words, I and the Father are one. Father's in me. I'm in the Father. Whatever he does, I do. Whatever I do is what he's doing. We're in total sync here. My teaching is not my own, he says in John 7, 16. It comes from the one who sent me. And so the fact that Jesus' words and actions at times contradict what had previously been understood about God tells us that at times things must have been lost in translation. I mean, there's no doubt that there was a commandment about the Sabbath day, but, but somehow the way that the people were observing it had been lost. They had lost the spirit of this because Jesus says, no, that's not the way this is supposed to work. If God had been portrayed by people in generations past as unapproachable, as kind of up there and distant and so, dis so removed from humanity, Jesus introduces God as personal, as one that we can speak to, as one that cares for our needs. If God had been one who was only interested in one group of people to the exclusion of others, Jesus comes in with his words and by his actions demonstrates that God is a God who actually embraces the other, who goes out of his way to meet the people who are outside of the in-group. And if God had been portrayed as a God who thought that violence was the way to solve problems or to get their way in the world, Jesus comes along and, and demonstrates something differently. He says things like, yeah, don't murder, but don't even be angry with people. If someone hits you on one cheek, turn them the other cheek as well. And he lived it out the same way he taught it, laying his own life down rather than fighting back in violent opposition to the forces that opposed him. Jesus provides us with a response to some of humanity's well-intentioned but at times dangerously misguided perceptions of who God is. I think Eugene Peterson sums it up well. He says, Jesus is the way God comes to us. And so everything that we understand about God, we want to read through the lens of Jesus' teachings and his life. Now I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise with me here for a second. Uh, if you think this is weird, whatever, just zone out for a second. Um, but I'm going to ask you, if you're comfortable, just close your eyes for a second. If you, you don't have to. But what I want you to do is to picture God. 
Okay. Now, I don't know for sure what you pictured, but I want to put an image on the screen and see if, if did, did he look anything like this? Right? Like, if you have to try to picture God, I think a lot of times the first kind of image that comes to our mind is kind of an old white guy in the sky. Right? When we think about God, it's hard to come up with an image of who God is. You can try to think of nothing, but that's difficult. So your brain is like, well, these are kind of the images that I've seen of God before. And so maybe this picture like this comes to mind. Well, in a day when patriarchy is being called to account in just about every sphere, the idea of an overtly male God doesn't sit well with some of us, and not without good reason. So there are a couple of ways that we can approach this. We can take the Ariana Grande approach. When all is said and done, you'll believe God is a woman. Um, that's not the angle that I'm going to go with this morning. But I would like us to take a little bit of a deeper look at this. Pete Rollins talks about the language that we use around God or the images that we have for God. And he uses this example. He says, so if we have like an, an idea or a name for God or an image of God, he said, it's like being a ship that's sunk into the depths of the ocean. The ocean contains the ship, and the ship contains the ocean. But while the ship contains only a fragment of the ocean, the ocean contains the entire ship. All right, now he's a philosopher, so it's a little deep. But this is, this is how I apply this to what we're talking about here this morning. So if we refer to God as the Father, God is the Father in the fullest sense. God is the ocean, and this picture, this image, or this name of God as Father is that ship that's sunk there. So God is the Father in the fullest sense that God can possibly be a Father. But the Father is only a fragment of who God is. It's like one ship in an entire ocean of understanding who God is. There are images of God and names for God given us in Scripture that really seem to contradict each other. So I'll just pull a couple of them as an example from Isaiah chapter 40. In verse 10 and 11, if you read this, uh, in verse 10, it refers to God as a conquering warrior king. And in verse 11, it refers to God as comforting and cuddling little lambs. So the same God is a conquering warrior king and a God who cuddles little lambs. So which one is it? Now, if you were to take just one of these and say, this is our God, what would happen? Well, if you were to take the image and say, well, the Bible says that God is a conquering warrior king, well, then you'd probably set out to foreign nations and wipe out people who aren't the same religion as you. That's probably what happens. If you view that God is just a, someone who cuddles little lambs, well, you probably don't take God very seriously. And you probably don't take what he's called to you very seriously either. Either of these pictures on their own, they give a very lopsided view of God. And of course, we could take any of the many different images of God in Scripture the same, and apply the same principle. But could the same thing be said of viewing God exclusively as a father? If we only think about God as a father, is that like only thinking about him as a warrior king? Or only thinking of him as someone cuddling a lamb? Is there something that we miss out by only viewing God as a father? So I was talking with someone about this this week, and they said, yeah, but Genesis right off the bat says that God created man in his image. I was like, does it? Is that what it says? Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, we'll just go back. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to spend too much time here. Um, but Genesis 1:27, the verse in question. Uh, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, that's like a really interesting passage there. That's one that we don't talk about, I don't, I don't think, a whole lot. But it's interesting, because God says that he created male and female in his own image. So if men and women are created in the image of God, 
then we shouldn't be surprised to think that God could be described with both masculine and feminine terms. We shouldn't be surprised to think that Father isn't like the all-encompassing language to describe God. This is found in Scripture, not a whole lot. Certainly, the overarching majority of references to God in Scripture are with a masculine, but the Bible certainly has a number of kind of feminine descriptions of God. Deuteronomy 32, an example, you deserted the rock who fathered you, you forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. Jesus himself, in speaking in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So neither Jesus nor the prophets seem to be uh, afraid of attributing feminine characteristics to God. And this is something that has carried on in the background of a long Christian history. Julian of Norwich, who, as a bit of an aside, is the first woman to publish a book in the English language, uh, writing in the 14th century, said, just as God is our father, so God is also our mother. St. John of the Cross, writing in the 16th century, talked about God giving the breast of his tender love to his people. The soul, he wrote, is caressed by God, even as is the tender child by its loving mother, who warms it with the heat of her bosom and nurtures it with sweet milk and soft and pleasant food and carries it and caresses it in her arms. In the 14th century, 16th century, at the end of the 20th century, John Paul II issued reforms in the Catholic Church and they issued a catechism uh, which gave the, the official teachings of the church and it proclaims that God is neither man nor woman, he's God. God doesn't fit in these categories. And actually, just as recently as the end of November, a couple of months ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Church of England, Justin Welby, was teaching and said that God is not male or female. God is not definable. All human language about God is inadequate and to some degree metaphorical. This is tough for us to wrestle with, partly because we love thinking of things in human terms, right? This is this phrase called anthropomorphic language, where we ascribe human characteristics to non-human things. So examples um, that some of us will be familiar with, you know, these cute little fellas, you know, these little dogs walking around, and they're all dressed up in different uniforms, playing human roles in their little dog's life. Or maybe like a, a cute bear who just kind of tumbles around and makes us feel warm and fuzzy. Or even just, you know, a sloth, like the perfect description of uh, an MTO worker. So there are these images, because we enjoy this, it helps us relate to these, these animals better. I mean, if you had a movie of a bunch of sloths doing what sloths do, you wouldn't watch it. <laughs> like, but if you can make a sloth do what humans do, then it's funny, right? It's something that we, it's kind of intrinsic to us as humans. We want to we wanna make other things have our kinds of qualities. And so we want to try to understand God. We try to imagine God as a person like us. And so there are examples in Scripture where body parts are attributed to God. So at one point, uh, Moses is permitted to see God's back, or a more literal translation, translation, his hind parts. We'll just leave it at that. Um, there's another situation where God says that he would engrave us on the palms of his hands. Israel many times is called to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So does this mean that God has a back that can be seen, that God has a, a hand that he's actually engraving things in, that he has eyes that are seeing us, like physical eyes that are seeing us. This helps us understand who God is, but it can also get us off track. 
Could we wrap our heads around how this applies to gender as well? That the, these are helpful words, but they can't capture God. Mike McGarg says that English, among others, is a tough language to use without invoking gender. If you write in a way that is more accurate about God's gender, you also make God less personal. And as an example, this week I was listening to uh, someone had written a worship song and took out kind of the personal references and replaced he with it. And it was such an awkward song. Oh, praise it. Oh, praise it. And it was like, no, that seems wrong. It seems wrong. So even if it's not like perfectly accurate, you know, to say he, um, it's more accurate than saying it because at least it makes God personal as he is, right? A number of years ago, a book was written, came out, and then a movie came out a few years after called The Shack. And uh, I'm sure that a number of you read it or possibly have seen the movie. If you haven't, please do. It's, it's, it's just interesting and really challenges, I think, our categories of how we think about God. Well, it's a very controversial book because uh, essentially the story is about this man who his family goes through this unspeakable tragedy and he kind of abandons his faith in God. And so God tries to get his attention and he brings him up into this cabin, the shack, uh, to spend a weekend with God. And the controversial piece of this book was that God is depicted as a black woman named Papa. And this confuses the man as he kind of com confronts God and is like, uh, wait a second, how, is, how can you be God? You know, remember, when we think about God, we think of God as the white man with a long beard flying in the clouds. So to see God depicted another way uh, was strange for him and confusing for him in the moment, but was offensive to a lot of people who read the book or people who saw the movie thinking, this is blasphemous. Like, how can we imagine that God would be in this kind of a part? And so the author, William Paul Young, writes about this kind of instant where, where the man meets God. God says, I am neither male nor female, which again, we've kind of heard repeated by the church down on through the years. Even though both genders are derived from my nature, that's at Genesis 1.27, if I choose to appear to you as a man or woman, it's because I love you. For me to appear to you as a woman and suggest you call me Papa is simply to mix metaphors, to help you keep from falling so easily back into your religious conditioning. And I think that's a great kind of wake-up call for us, that it's so easy for us to fall into ruts about thinking about God this way as if, as I've been saying for these last weeks, as if he can just be defined that simply or confined to a box that easily. Like that's that religious conditioning. We've got to be careful that we are continually trying to explore and discover God for the fullness of who he is. Because the truth is the way we speak about God can actually affect our relationship with God, which is really what Jesus was talking about. Now admittedly, for some of us, thinking of God as a father can be problematic. I read a news headline last week, Rihanna files suit against her dad. Apparently Rihanna claims that her father and his business partner fraudulently used her name to make money and she's suing them over it Although Mr. Fenty, her father, is Rihanna's father, he does not have, never has had, authority to act on Rihanna's behalf. And I'm reading this and thinking, this is, a, this is like a famous person's story that is multiplied millions of times over in our world, where a father drops the ball on being a father. And so for many people, the idea of trying to wrap their head around God as a father is actually a barrier to knowing God. But this is not the kind of father Jesus introduces us to. There's an interesting verse in Matthew 23, 9, where Jesus says, do not call anyone on earth father, for if you have one father and he is in heaven. Now there's one command that basically none of us bother to listen to, right? Like probably no one in this room has said, 
No, I'm not going to call my dad, dad. I'm not going to call him father. I'm not going to do it. Jesus said so. We just ignore that. We don't think it, we have to take that one seriously, right? The point Jesus was trying to make was not that God was a father, but that he was our father. There's a distinction there. The goal wasn't that we would think differently about God, but that we would approach God. Okay, Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to describe God for you. He was saying, I want to introduce God to you. It wasn't descriptive. It was relational. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, uh, the title of this morning's sermon, this is then how you should pray, Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Now think about this. No one had ever taught anyone to pray like this before. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This invitation to pray to God as a father was something that was new. And Jesus taught and demonstrated that God is approachable and that God has our best interests in mind. Ask him for your daily bread. Ask him for mercy. Ask him to prevent you from leading into temptation. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus said. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God takes care of the birds of the air. Is he not going to take care of you as well? And then our reading from Matthew 7, starting at verse 9. Which of you, is if some ask for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, Jesus wasn't aware of the whole, like, Jimmy Kimmel challenge, right? Parents give their children terrible gifts and videotape them and show the whole world. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, let's not get distracted by the thought of having a heavenly Father who will grant all of our wishes. That wouldn't have entered the mind of Jesus' audience. No one there was thinking, great, I can get everything I want now. The point was that you can ask. You can be in relationship with this God. You can approach him with confidence. The point, summarized well by Richard Rohr, is that God is on your side, honestly more than you are on your own. It's a beautiful phrase that I think captures what Jesus was trying to tell us about who God is. By telling the story of his own intimate relationship with the Father, Jesus was inviting people to likewise enter into a trusting and loving relationship with the one that they were perhaps stuck thinking of as a distant, far-removed, and totally other deity. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Our Father. In John 17, we find another prayer of Jesus, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, in which he prays to his Father in heaven, saying, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Now, that's powerful. I said at the beginning that Jesus shows us a lot more about who God is, but he says, I'll continue to make you known. And he says this at the very end of his life. I want to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from Mike McGarg's book, Finding God in the Waves. First, God was with us in the garden, and we could walk and talk with him just as we could with anyone else. This was an easy way for us to understand God, but in time we grew to understand that this was too limiting a way to talk about our creator. So God became a bush that burned but was not consumed, who described himself with such sweeping language as, I am that I am, 
and I will be that which I will be. Then God became a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to show that he was the God of the people of Israel, guiding them through their exodus and exile. Then God was in a ceremonial ark of the covenant, a physical symbol of his word, carried onto the field of battle to offer his favor to the people. And then he dwelled in a temple, anchored like other gods of that age to the soil of his people. First a man, then a bush, then a pillar, and finally a spirit that dwelled in a temple in the greatest city of his people's nation. God, a great mystery accessible only through priests and elaborate rituals, a powerful figure, but one not easily understood. So God once again became a man, a human with a face who could walk and talk with us like anyone else. God told us stories and parables and said, blessed are those, offering a picture of human life that overturned the one we had made ourselves. But Jesus says he will continue to make that one. And I want to end with this thought. I invite you to stand. I want to read from Galatians chapter 4. In so many ways, Jesus shows us enough about God. But he's not finishing revealing God to us. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Here is Jesus continuing to show us who God is living in us by the presence of his spirit, helping us to cry out, to pray, to call out God, Father. Through the spirit of Christ in us, God continues drawing us to himself in love. Let's pray. God, it is an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you in this way. And I just want to acknowledge here at this point in history just what a privilege it is and acknowledge how many people who who wanted to know you but didn't know how or didn't think it was possible. And I'm grateful that through your son you've shown us the way to address you as a father. But I also believe, God, that as your spirit continues to well up these prayers within us, that we will get to know you more for the fullness of who you are. Because knowing you isn't about having theological concepts or definitions of you. It's about being in relationship with you as a child is to a parent. And so God, that's how we come to you. And we ask that even as we've begun this year with these big questions about who God is, we ask that you would help this to be a foundational to where we go as a community of faith the rest of the year, knowing you and committing to know you more as your spirit leads us. With thanks in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so once again, hopefully some good conversation. Uh, to follow from this morning's message. I'd invite you to make your way through the lobby and into the gym. If you're visiting with us for the first time, this is what we do every week. I talk for a while, and then you talk for a while, and then we leave. So if you want to make your way to the gym, find a seat at a table. We'll dive into conversation about this morning's theme, and we'll formally wrap up our morning at 1230. Thank you.